this morning we're going to be looking at Second Thessalonians. Before we do, uh, you know, there's this guy named Mohandas K. Gandhi. Anybody ever heard of him? Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, usually known as the Great Soul. Um, that's what Mahatma means. Uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi, he's a, he a Hindu, never converted to Christianity, sadly. But he probably studied the New Testament a lot more than most Christians, woke up every morning between 2 and 3 uh, to read the New Testament and study the life of Jesus. Really interesting, a Hindu who studied the life of Christ, right? And he came to this understanding of how the world was supposed to work. And some of his thoughts are really something. Um, but one of them was that the caste system in, in which he had been born was really a concerning situation. And he realized that some of the people that he was surrounded by who were of a different caste than himself were very exploited. And he came to understand that these people, some of them known as untouchables, which was the lowest known caste in his time, that was the, the class in society in which they found themselves, they were tremendously held down by other people. And he felt the need to speak out about that. And as he was thinking about how to reframe the imagination of the people that he was surrounded by, he came to the realization that he was going to have to change these people's names. To be an untouchable is not a blessing, right? For someone to say that you are not someone who should be touched. Interestingly, uh, later on in later on in the in the development of the Western world, there were some people who actually discovered that there was a lower caste than the Untouchables. It was a it was a group that was so so. Uh, hidden that they only came out at night and they thought it was absolutely a curse for them to be seen by anybody else in that society and so they hid themselves not just from touch but from view that's how denigrated certain groups were in this in this situation and so gandhi decided he needed to speak out about that and so what he decided to do was say that was to change the name of the lowest caste that he could access and he changed them from the untouchables to the harijan which literally means the children of god children of God. When we want to change something about our world, or maybe when God wants to change something about our world, the place to start is to change the name. And when you look across the story of the scriptures, what you will find, and again, is that our God is a naming God. He is the quality of creating life and creating people and saying, listen, you are to be this sort of person. And then what's interesting is we've gone our own way and we've kind of broken that path, right? We've broken that picture of who God wanted us to be. Interestingly, the Bible gets started with a guy named Abram, Genesis chapter 12. And Abram is named Abram, and that means father. But he has real difficulty being a dad. He can't seem to have children. And uh, God comes along in the middle of his not having children and says, not only are you going to be a father, but you're going to be the father of many. And I want you to step into that identity and walk it out in faith and trust that I'm going to actually birth in you more than one child, actually a nation worth of children. And he says, your name now is Abraham, which means many, or father of many. Interesting change, right? If you go to his grandchild, there's this guy named Jacob. Anybody know what Jacob means? If you're named Jacob, I hate to tell you. It literally in Hebrew means liar or manipulator. And, you know, if you read the story of Jacob in the Old Testament, he actually is that. He's a manipulator. He's a twister of words, a man who gets his way through uh, inappropriate means. And he spends his life that way until God comes along to him and he gets in a wrestling match with God. This must have been some wrestling match, right? But if you read the Old Testament, he actually got in a wrestling match with God. And at the end of it, God changes his name and he changes his name to Israel. Do you know what Israel means? It means someone who wrestles with God. 
Israel means to wrestle with God. Now, here's the thing. When God names people, it's interesting. He doesn't just mean to to change their name to something they can be called by. It's not just a handle on a CB radio. It's actually something much, much more. It's actually a valuable tool in understanding what that person is called to be. And, you know, the whole history of the Bible then from, from Israel getting his name, from Jacob turning to Israel, from then on, it's almost as if the whole Old Testament reads from the standpoint of these people who are wrestling with God, all of his descendants, again and again, metaphorically wrestling with God. The naming of people is powerful, and God does it, and he says, this is going to be our history. And what's interesting is God doesn't give up on those people. He keeps wrestling, and so do they. And he wrestles them right to the foot of the cross, right? He says, here I am, and I'm going to die for you. We've wrestled all this time. Let me tell you, I am here to name you and say that my son is going to be your God, going to be your leader, going to be your king, going to be your Messiah. And we've had all this wrestling, but let it end on this note. We're on the same team. And as Jesus breathed his last, he said the words, it is finished. Now, Paul takes a little bit of that, and he says in 2 Thessalonians 1, he, he goes off on a completely different tack. And I want to read this passage for you, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be about this. We're going to have to switch over in the back. This is 2 Thessalonians 1.11. It says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now, if you took that word calling apart, what it could literally mean is naming. And Paul is praying a prayer. He's saying, to this end, we always pray for you. I, Paul, your pastor, your leader, your apostle, am praying for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling or his naming. Now, this makes me think that with all of the evidence that we see in the scriptures, that God has a name for you and that maybe that name is bigger than just what your mom or your dad named you. It's all of who you are. It's a calling. It's an understanding. And he calls us by that name. And then we live in a manner that is worthy of that calling. Not so much, right? We have a picture of who we are. And that picture is in a disagreement with God. You know, when I was growing up, I was a tremendous nerd. You're going to be very surprised by this. Nobody saw it coming, right? Shelby, even today, has a major complaint about our marriage. And that's that wherever I sit, and sometimes even wherever I sleep, I accumulate books. All around me, wherever that is, there are these books. They just start to grow, and I think they reproduce. I don't put them there. They just kind of pile themselves up. And she says, why can't we have some space in our house that doesn't have books on it, you know? But that's how I was born. I love to read, and I love information. I think it's fascinating. And my wife doesn't always love my love of information. But my dad came along when I was a little kid. I remember him saying this. He said, you know, all you want to do is sit in the house and read. And he said, no, I want you to get out there and do something else. Anything else. I want you to go fishing, go hunting, go play football, go do something, because I don't want a nerd for a kid. I've just spent three days with my dad, and I still do care about the man. We have a great relationship. But, you know, I think sometimes maybe he was a little bit wrong about this. Maybe God just said, in utero, Josh Whitework is supposed to be a nerd. You know, God said that to Bill Gates, and look at all the money he made, you know? I mean, God does this stuff. I don't know if God really said that to Bill Gates. That's just free. But... You get the idea. God has a calling on your life and on my life. And what this passage says is that you were named. And frankly, your name might be something beyond your knowing, beyond your understanding. And what Paul prays in this passage is is simple. I'm just praying that you live up to your name. 
You know, when the Bible talks about us becoming Christians, I remember my moment of deciding I wanted to be a Christian. I'd heard the gospel story so many times, the story of the New Testament, heard it again and again and again. Frankly, I yawned when I heard it. And I remember sitting in a room full of 900 people and this guy giving it once again. And all of a sudden, it was like somebody else was there with me. And I heard two things. One, I heard who he was. And I said, oh, this is somebody who's here beyond my experience, understanding beyond my mind. There is somebody in this room beyond all these 900 other people. There is somebody here. And then I realized that he was also telling me that I was somebody other than who I thought I was. And I look back and I wouldn't have said this because I was about 17 years of age, but I look back and I think that was God naming me. And he was just calling my name saying, this is who you are. You thought you were that guy. You wanted to be this. Some of us wanted nothing more than to hide in life and for no one to notice. Others of us, we want to be noticed all the time. I have a daughter named Maggie who just, if you haven't met her, she wants to be noticed. Honestly, she does. We went to this homeless, it was drizzling rain. We went to see Jeff and Amy and Jim and Deb Swall at this, uh, this uh, service that commemorated people who had passed away who were homeless. And it was this rainy event and so dark and everything. And I saw the mayor walk in in the back. It was outdoors. And so the rain's coming down. And Maggie, I don't even know how she knows who this is. She walks over to the mayor. And in the midst of what is supposed to be kind of a funeral-like service, she walks up and says, hi. I am Maggie, and introduces herself to the mayor of Pottstown. That's who she wants to be, right? Some of us want to be people who everybody notices, and everybody should look at me. Others of us say, please don't look at me till I have something to say. Others of us say, we don't ever want to be seen. Please just leave us alone. There's all these little alter egos that we create, and some of those things are God-given, and some of them are things based in fear that we were never called to have in our hearts. And Jesus birthed this thing in our lives, and he says, when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. You get a new name. You get called into a family. But then there's a whole other set of questions as to whether we walk in a manner worthy of that calling, of that name, right? We walk all sorts of other names out in our lives, all sorts of other walks. You know, this isn't the end of where the Bible goes with this. I want to give you just one example. In Revelation 2, it talks about this. There's these... these, uh, there's these churches that are all listed, seven of them in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And the Apostle John records Jesus' words to the angels of these churches. And it ends, each one of them, these little letters with this line, that if you overcome, then Jesus will do this in your life. And this is from one of those lines. If you overcome, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. A white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Maybe we all have names that God alone knows. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe you have an identity that is beyond what your parents told you you should be or your school district or all of the people in your culture, your spouse, whoever those people are that have influenced you. Maybe you have a name that only God knows. And frankly, I think sometimes he doesn't tell all of our name to us at once. Our identity remains hidden because we wouldn't handle it very well. We would use it for all sorts of different things. But instead, God is hiding that name and saying, you know, I'm writing it in a book. And when you get to heaven, I'm going to tell you, this is who I always created you to be. And this is the you that I love. And I have always loved it. I've always loved you for who I created you to be. And I've always been working on you to get you to the place where you could become a person worthy of the name I gave you at the very beginning. High expectations. High expectations that God has for us, right? God looks at us and he says, you have a better future than you could possibly know because I love you this much and I have this much respect for who I created you to be. You have a name and identity that is found in me. Paul goes on, there's another line in this verse, the end of 
1 Thessalonians 1.11 reads this way, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Have you ever been talking with the Lord, just reading the scriptures, and you come across some little tidbit, something that just kind of tweaks your soul and says, I should do whatever it is. This year, right, I, I, I wasn't watching you if you were here on the Sunday when we wrote on this board over here, but I wrote uh, a word for myself. And when we were praying about what we were supposed to be a part of as far as each of us, oh, they all came back just like that. You see them? Beautiful little children. I think they need help. All right, so I wrote something down in there because when we were meeting with the Lord and we were having this quiet time in our auditorium and it was like, okay, what does God want to do in this year in your life? Well, I'll tell you what he wanted to do in mine. It says right in the center where the two cross members meet, the vertical and the horizontal in that cross, it says, choose peace. That's what it says next to my name in my heart. I didn't write my name up there because I didn't want you to know that. But today I think I can do it. I, I don't always choose peace in my life. And I especially don't always choose peace with my kids. Sometimes I get brusque and hurried and quick. And I want to get as far as I can, as fast as I can. And then God comes along and says, these kids, they don't need to get that far that quick. What they need is a little bit of peace. Frankly, maybe a lot of people around Josh Whitework need some peace. And that was a moment when God said to me, listen, you need to resolve something in your heart. You need to commit to something. In faith, you need to hear me speak and say that the best Josh is a Josh who decides to be peaceful and decides to be patient and decides to live out the fruits of the Spirit and not just do everything on his to-do list all the time. God spoke that to me. I wrote it down. I wrote it in my journal. You know, what's problematic for me is that I don't remember these things when I have them. I remember this one. You know why? Because it's sitting over there and every Sunday I see it right? It's a little bit of a monument to myself saying, Josh, you're a mess. You need to get fixed. That's what it is right there. And the, the center of the cross is a little statement. You never read it that way. But what that says is one of your pastors, not all of them, you've got some good ones, but this one is a broken mess, right? And we need to resolve in our heart that when we listen to God and he starts to put something in front of us like that, we need to write it down. We need to put a monument in place. We need to do something. I don't know what it is for you. Something that says, God is calling my name, and he is saying this thing is in between me becoming who I'm supposed to be, the me that God created me to be, and where I'm at. And I need to step into this thing in a new way. I'm hearing you, Lord. In faith, you're speaking to me. You're talking to me. And I need to hand it to you and say, Oh, Lord God, please create a better Josh Bitework out of this mess. And I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to remember the next time one of my kids asks the same question three times in a row, that I'm called to peace, that I'm supposed to walk it out for them. I'm called to love in the middle of what is a difficult situation. You have things that God wants to do in your life, and there are things that you're not walking according to your calling, right? Let's be honest. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus, so says the New Testament, but it's not all new at once, it would seem. we got kind of some old stuff in us. And what Paul writes in this passage is, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that you would walk in a manner worthy of your calling. I'm praying that you would live up to your name. I'm praying that you would be resolved for the good and for every work of faith by his power. God wants to work in you, but there's a question about whether you're going to take all that power and you're going to let it work in your life. About 200 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Herman. I just like people that, with that name, you know. I have a friend named Herman, and this is this guy named Herman Oldshausen. He is German. And he wrote about this passage. And of all the things that I read about it this week, this just kind of struck me. It said, this was his commentary on Second Thessalonians 1.11, May God fill you with all that good that is pleasing 
to him. In other words, there is all this good in God, and he hands us a name and an identity, and it is good because he loves us and he created us to be his children, and yet we choose the not good, and then the choice of being resolved and stepping into faith and listening to God about what he wants to do in our lives is the choice to let him pour that goodness back into us. You know, I think a lot of times I walk around with one of those uh, things you strain out the water from macaroni after you boil it, I'm good at making macaroni, macaroni and cheese. You know what I'm saying? I boil it, and when you get done, you got to pour it in that pan. And what happens? The macaroni stays in the, in the pot or whatever it is, and then it, the water strains out through the bottom, right? I think I'm pretty good at this. God's goodness pours into me, and I say, I'm just going to forget about it and let it water the ground around me. I'm not going to store it up and go, oh, this is the goodness of God poured out for Josh Whitework. He loved me enough to step in and tell me that he wanted me to be a different person, that he created me to be this unique individual and to step into this stuff. And I would rather imitate other things and be afraid and be going, I'm a little weird when God gets a hold of my life. And instead he's saying, no, walk it out in faith and let the goodness of my, my spirit pour it into your existence. There's somebody out there amening. Can you hear them? You know, it's, it's really beautiful. I love that. All right, so we have this picture that God wants to pour his goodness into our lives. There's a third step. The, the, the first step is that we have a name, and we are not living up to it, and that God is calling us that name again and again and again, and that he wants to pour this goodness into our lives that is in between us and becoming the person we're created to be. Here's the third step. It's the next verse in Second Thessalonians 1. It's verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of cool words in this passage. There's a word about God and Jesus Christ and glory and grace. Those are big words, right? I mean, not long words, but they're words that they're supposed to catch your eye. Glory. Whoa. We've had sermons on glory in this, in this church and grace. And we talk about Jesus. We've been talking about the red letters of Jesus. But in this passage, I want you to notice a smaller word. And maybe it's actually one of the more fundamental words. It's actually really important to understand what it means. In. Just in. You see that? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. In, twice, right there, back and forth. What does it mean to put something inside something else? Well, you know, last night, about 11 p.m., the University of Michigan, great basketball school. They were doing great all night. They, a lot of times it was like they couldn't miss, and then they couldn't make even their free throws at 11 p.m. And I got a text. I want you to know that uh, this tells you something bad about one of the other pastors in this church. If you don't want to know anything bad about the other pastors, close your ears now. But I got a text, and it said this line. It said, hey, can we talk right now? 11 p.m. And the, it was just about to the point where the University of Syracuse hit a three-pointer, and it was Michigan was up by one point with less than a minute left. I think that was about when this text got. And it, and it said, can we talk right now? And it was from Tim. And I'm going, oh, no, what crisis has hit our church that I've got to interrupt a Final Four basketball game with my favorite team. They haven't been in the Final Fours, you know how long? This is? 20 years, 20 years of a draw, and I'm here. And then it said, LOL. And he was just messing with me. Just, he just did that. But, you know, we know what it means to put a basketball, in, a basketball inside a basket. Uh, we have a Tupperware uh, cupboard 
And all of our Tupperware is supposed to stack off, and we don't take the time to stack it, and it just, you know, open that cupboard and the whole thing comes out. But you're supposed to stack Tupperware. That's the beauty of Tupperware is it actually fits inside itself. Well, there's something else that this word means. That's the way it used to mean. But, you know, this guy named Jesus got a hold of it, and he actually changed the meaning of the word. This is true. Other writers in the New Testament era didn't use this word the way the New Testament writers did, and it all started with Jesus. He actually changed what this word meant. And it's as though you ever hear a pastor make up a word in the middle of a sermon. Jesus was actually teaching, and he used this word differently than anybody else had ever used it. He said it this way, and it's in John chapter 15. He said, remain in me. And what he meant is completely different than a basket going into a hoop or a Tupperware bowl fitting into a larger bowl. What he meant in this moment was something of a connection a life-giving conduit going two ways where two people connected. And the two people were not just two human beings. The two people were God above and people like you and me below. And he said this line, remain in me as I also remain in you. The old word for it in the King James Version was abide in me. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me very different than just kind of that spatial, physical idea that we were talking about on a basketball floor. Instead, what we're talking about here is this mystical, spiritual unity between a God and a person. And he says, I want to be there with you. I want to be connected with you. I want to change you to be what your name has always intended you to be. I named you, and I love you, and I am sitting here speaking little words into your life that say, you're supposed to be somebody different, and I love the person you're supposed to be, and I'm going to get you there, and I'm going to stick with it. But the question is, are we going to remain in him? And Paul takes that word. There's another passage where Jesus uses it, This is in in John chapter 17, and he says it this way, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you, the Father, are in the Son, and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In fact, he repeats in so many times in these few chapters of the Bible, you get the idea that Jesus is making a big point out of the word in, right? We need to be in the Father God. We need to be in a relationship with the Son that is flowing life and word into our existence. Paul takes it, and in Romans chapter 6, he says this, In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And of course, we're reading 2 Thessalonians 1, where it has a whole new line, and it says, Listen, you can be glorified in Jesus, and Jesus is to be glorified in you. You know, you know what it means to have glory? The idea behind that word just simply means reputation. I get scared when I hear this word. You know why? Because that means that God's reputation, he says that he's going to put his reputation, he's going to derive his reputation from me. What people know about God, they see in me. You've seen me a lot, right? Some of you have seen me at other moments than my best. If what you know about God was completely dependent on what you know about Josh Bightwork, where would you be? It's a little concerning, isn't it? This passage literally says that we are God's reputation. We are the people that give God who he is. Uh, In the mind of other people, we give the communication to other people about who God is. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has a name for you. And God has a plan for you. And that plan has to do with people being other than what we naturally are. And he wants to pour his power into our lives. And third, there is this final goal where we get to be the reputation of God. And where people look at us and they say, you know what? Maybe God is good. Because he's pouring all that goodness into that guy over there. I can trust God. Wouldn't that be nice if that's what he said about us? This whole plan behind, behind it lies a single word. And we need to talk about this little final word. It says it right on the screen. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? What is grace? Undeserved favor. That's the theological version. You know, literal Greek, it just means to like something. It means to like something. God does all of this stuff. He names us. And he calls us back to our name again and again. I picture that good shepherd that Jesus says he is. And he's speaking these words into our lives. I I, I kind of imagine him just being the good shepherd who speaks his identity to us. Your name. He's saying, you are so and so. And in between you and being that person that you were created to be are all of these resolutions that you need to write down and live out and walk out with my power. And then finally, you will live out the reputation of God on earth. What a great hope that is. And I'm doing all this. I'm choosing to use you despite where you've come from, despite the fact that you've immediately and again and again decided you would rather be anything else than what I called you to be. And I'm doing that all because I like you. Every now and then pastors get this wrong. When we get to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Every now and then preachers sound like for God so judged the world that he gave us his only son. It just disappeared behind me, didn't it? I don't know what's going on back here, but all morning it's just been a little crazy. You know what I'm saying? But God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God didn't send his only begotten son so that he could love the world. And you might have heard it the other way around. You know why God sent his son is because he likes you. And the reason God named you who you are and made you who you are is because he likes you. And the reason God is trying to change you is because you keep trying to be something other than who you are. And when God brings you back to who you are, the reason he decides that you're going to be his family member and you're going to live in the same connection in him and glorify him and he's going to glorify you, the reason why that all works, this kind of conduit of grace, glorifying the Father and then our reputation changing as a result, why is that all? Because he likes you. You know, one of the most staggering things that anybody ever hears is that God likes them. I'm convinced. There's this great theologian. It was about 150 years ago. His name was Karl Barth. And he had changed the world with his writings. I mean, really, one of those guys who had altered. He lived to see the fact that his life had changed, not just hundreds or thousands, but literally millions of lives around him. And he was dying. And everybody knew he was dying. One of the most brilliant men of his time. And of course, you know, when somebody like that dies, people gather around him and they want to glean those last little bits of word, right? And he was dying and he was lying in his bed and these men are gathered around him and they're asking him questions. And they say, you know, what is the single truth? The the greatest thing you've ever thought of? You've written theology books that just go on and on and on and on. What's the single greatest truth, Dr. Bart, that you've ever heard? And he said, of all the things I've ever heard, Just these words. And he said them with frail, breaking whispers. He could hardly get it out. He said, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. 
God's grace is the reason why he likes you. God's liking you is the reason why he made you. And the reason why he's trying to change you is because he likes the real you. And the reason he's going to use you in this world today is because why? He likes you. What a thought. Join me in prayer.